Hi everyone, this is Nature Tripping. I'm Cathy. And I'm Jo. Welcome to our podcast. It's about going outside to experience the wildlife that's all around us. We're going to be chatting about where we are and what's happening. But sometimes we'll just leave the microphones recording so we can spend some time just listening. This is episode 21 of Nature Tripping and we're in the New Forest. It's the middle of May and we are standing amongst the trees. There's a black cap singing. A light aircraft. Oh. No, a motorbike. A guy on a motorbike. And the sun is shining and it's not very windy. We've been really lucky with the weather because it's been pretty wet and chilly up to now. But spring, early summer, spring, definitely underway. And we're here with two contributors today who are nearby residents of the New Forest, um, Adrian and Lynn. Would you like to introduce yourselves? I'm Lynn Davy. I suppose you could call me a naturalist as part of what I do. Um, I worked for many years as a science copy editor and that sort of thing, so I have a science degree. But what I really love is just getting out and looking at the natural world and seeing what there is. And I'm Adrian Newton. So I'm a professor at the Bournemouth University and I'm a conservation ecologist there and I've been working in the New Forest for many years on the ecology of the place. And you were kind enough to offer, well, to have a conversation with us about the New Forest and what goes on here. And I guess the first thing that I wanted to ask is what is the New Forest? Because Cathy and I have been here a couple of days we've been camping and what we have discovered is whilst there are trees what we'd normally kind of associate with the word forest (laughs) that's a bit of a in some ways a misnomer or maybe a different definition of forest is needed because whilst we're in the wooded environment at the moment we've also been to large areas of heathland we've traipsed through bogs with lots of sphagnum moss. We've been to lakes. Open grasslands. Yes. There's many different habitats within the boundary of what the OS map says is the new forest. And of course, new. What's that about? Um, <laughs> it was new when it was, when it was set up. So when it was set up a thousand years ago, it was the new forest. And it's, it's not the definition of forest that means you've got somewhere with lots of trees in it. It really was set up as a, a hunting preserve. So it's probably from some old French derivation of foray, which really means um, an area of ground that you would use for hunting. So within that, you would have the heathlands, the grasslands, the open areas, and also obviously the woods. And you would go out there with your royal hunting party and chase your deer and whatever. Um, through these various different habitats and have a very exciting time, no doubt. It, it, it's a functional definition rather than a sort of ecological one. Am I right? That sounds perfect. Sort of. And yeah. it was new just after the Norman Conquest, wasn't yes. it? I think this is a fascinating yes. thing, isn't it? People come and think, new, what's that about? <laughs> I mean, I've, I've written a paper which is about this being probably the oldest protected area in the world. And uh, I've said that claim 
to lots of people and no one's been able to disprove it because there are other ancient hunting reserves in other parts of Europe or maybe in China there's ancient religious forests but this is really old mm. of, you know over 900 years at least of being a, a protected for hunting. I was wondering why this forest has persisted whereas many others throughout England which were um, hunting forests have kind of gone into private ownership or become part of modern agriculture? That's a really, really great question. And it actually takes you back to the roots of conservation as a movement. So we have the second oldest conservation organization in the world here in the New Forest. It's the New Forest Association. It's been going for nearly 150 years, I think. And it was set up really to do exactly what you just said, to fight off the private landowners who wanted to privatise the forest and turn it into their estates. And that's what happened to almost all of our medieval hunting forests. But here there was a local campaign with this NGO and uh, not only that but an alliance between the local conservation people and uh, scientists coming down from London and naturalists and painters, so artists, were instrumental. So it was just at the time the railway was being built in the sort of 1850s and suddenly this became a tourist destination. It became the centre of a massive butterfly hunting industry. It was the best site in Britain for butterflies. And so what that did, this, this sort of leisure industry built up this public interest in conserving the forest and they fought off these landowners. So it's got a very special history connected with conservation. Ah, so it went from being for the king to hunting to being a recreational treasure in the landscape but for leisure i think that's spot on and it started then yeah and now it's a national park yeah 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 and within the national park there's area that's still owned by the king isn't it yeah we're in the crown lands right here so uh, obviously we have a new king on the throne at the moment (laughs) he's just one of a whole succession of monarchs who said yeah that's mine Uh, i'm going to give it over to the state agencies the forestry commission to manage but it's still mine well, it's the deer of mine. It's the deer he's really interested in. <laughs> We've come across this term on the map. Um, lots of places seem to be called something something enclosure. I-N closure, mm. not E-N closure. Mm, but not all of them have got fences around. Yeah, it's another mystery, isn't it? The New Forest is full of these lovely mysteries. And enclosure, it's about keeping the animals out, traditionally. That's what it was about. Okay. So traditionally, they would indeed have been fenced... Uh, these were areas where the commoners, these are the local people who put their livestock out onto the forest, they're not allowed to graze their animals within the enclosure. Traditionally, that was the idea, yeah. to allow trees to grow. Was, because they've got the competition, haven't you, between uh, the forest as a place where you grow trees versus um, where you might want to do your farming, effectively. It's timber for shipbuilding. 18th century. OK, so fence off some land so you can grow some trees to cut them down and build ships with. So they they were originally set up and the commoners' rights, the commoners were excluded from the enclosures. But today that system has become much more open and flexible and they've had a policy of taking the fences away and letting the livestock roam over a much bigger area. Mm. Because that's one of the main things we've noticed that's so different from elsewhere in the country, isn't it? Like you've got ponies roaming around... I mean, we were messing about in a bog yesterday and then some cows just strolled through. Deer everywhere. Yeah, 40, would it be roe deer around? Oh, yeah, yeah. Fallow deer. deer. It's very medieval, isn't it? It's one of the few places that you can go into an extensive landscape like this 
which still has lots of large herbivores in it. Yes, yes. And it's quite uh, yeah, and it is a medieval. It's, it's a, a medieval survival of a medieval system. commoning system, yeah, which is extraordinary yeah. that it survived. So now there's a kind of mixture of the grazing animals of the commoners and the wild deer, but there's a conspicuous absence of sheep, because where where we are in in the Peak District or in Yorkshire or the Yorkshire Dales, everywhere is bare because of sheep overgrazing by sheep. It's very easy to forget this, but it's internationally designated as a Ramsar site, so it's a wetland. You said you've been to some boggy places. Lots of it is really wet, and that doesn't really suit... If you come in the winter. ...suit the sheep, yeah. So, uh, and I think that's partly why it survived. That's partly why it's not been turned into agriculture. The soils are very poor, and they're very wet, and it's... uh, it's, a, it's famously wet everywhere. So, where we are now, this particular part of the new forest is actually woodland and it's Denny wood. What's special about this area? Well, I've brought you here because it's one of a whole series of ancient woodlands, native ancient woodlands, so they're full of fantastic big ancient native trees. And uh, although you say, oh, we haven't seen much woodland, actually the New Forest has the largest extent of native woodland in England. Um, so, but it's in patches and it's often quite hidden away. So you have to track it down. So we've tracked this one down and the reason why I brought you to Dennywood in particular, as this was set up as a reserve back in the 1950s. So there was a group of researchers at Southampton University who felt passionately that this particular bit should be protected and also monitored. So they put down this long transect, which is a form of survey plot, just to monitor how it changes over time. So there's very few places where you can go anywhere in Britain or Europe where that's been done over, in this case, around 70 years, so it gives us a really fantastic opportunity to understand how the woodlands are changing. Yeah, so as I say, this group of researchers um, set up the plot. It's more more than a kilometre long, it's huge, and in fact there's two of them. Uh, So, and they mapped all the trees, they described it, and then after that, about every 10 years or so, uh, groups of researchers have come in and repeated that survey to find out what's happened. And uh, we were just talking in the car earlier, weren't we? There are actually other plots not too far away, which we've also surveyed, also been running for decades, where nothing at all has happened. (laughs) The trees have got a bit bigger, maybe, but nothing really has changed. But here in Denny, there's been dramatic changes, and that's partly why I thought it'd be good to come and see it with you. Well, you can see it all round, can't you? From standing here, you can see all round you there are big trees still standing. There are some that have broken off at head height, some that have fallen, some that have been felled but there's lots of evidence of loss of trees Um, but what there isn't is sapling beech trees coming up to Mm. replace them yeah you look around you see dead log over there fallen log over there another one another one probably about 30 or 40 dead trees that we can see just from where we're standing now what we know is back in the 1950s there were very few dead trees this was intact high forest with trees of about 25 metres tall, something like that. But with a sort of, with a canopy? With completely so this, closed canopy. This wouldn't have been a clearing, we wouldn't have been standing here looking at the sky, you'd have looked up and seen branches and green yeah. leaves. And at the moment, on, on the ground, there's 
mainly grass, occasional brambles. Before, when there was the dense canopy above, what would the ground floor have been like then? Well, that's another great question. And uh, again, that was measured on the transect. So we know it's got a lot grassier. You pointed out here we're in quite a big clearing now. It wasn't a clearing before, now it is. And it's more or less a complete cover of grass. There are some shrubs and plants that grow in the deep shade. I don't know whether we can see ruscus anywhere, but butcher's broom, that's a key plant here. We've got spurge over there. Don't know which spurge it is. Wood spurge. Wood spurge, uh, which is another native shade-tolerant plant, mm. um, or fairly shade-tolerant. So there would have been an understory, and without the grazing animals, there would have been regenerating beech, would have been young trees of holly and beech. Mm. Um, and there were some back when the transit was first created. And what's led to all this clearing opening up? That's another really interesting issue, and uh, there aren't many possibilities. Um, one possibility is disease, uh, and another possibility is we were just chatting earlier, weren't we, nitrogen deposition, because all over Britain uh, we've got very high rates of nitrogen deposition. From now. pollution? It's from aerial pollution, yeah, it's from vehicle exhaust and from agricultural use of fertilisers, and that doesn't do forests any good, particularly on these poor soils. So we've looked at these possibilities. Um, the overriding message seems to be that it's climate change that's killing these trees. And uh, it's this combination of wet winters and hot, dry summers. And of course, our winters have been getting wetter, our summers have been getting drier, and that's just fatal, particularly for beech. Oak is a bit more tolerant of this kind of change, but beech, it's really a mountain tree. It's a tree of the Alps uh, or the Apennines in Italy. Um, and here we're at the northern end of its range, and it likes it a bit more continental. And uh, what it likes, I mean, it's been here 8,000 years. And these are some of the oldest beech forests in Britain. They are internationally important in terms of the species that live here, but they're dying, we think, because the climate's changing, and that's uh, really, really sad. Mm. One of the important things with these ancient trees is they support a lot of other plant species and animal species and invertebrates and birds. And fungi. And fungi. Oh, yeah, spectacular. These woods are terrific for fungi. So and yes, once you once you lose the the trees, obviously you you lose a lot of these associated specialists. Some things are able to switch to boring into a different sort of wood, eating a different species of leaf, whatever. But a lot of species aren't. So once the host tree has gone, then you lose all of those specialists as well. You said in some parts of the new forest, the wooded areas are the same as they were mm. previously. But this one, you've seen this dramatic change. Mm. What's different about this area compared with those other areas where you haven't had the same number of dying trees? Well that's something we really try to understand and uh, there are many areas it's, uh, where this sort of dieback is occurring. It's not just here in Denny Wood, it's throughout the beech forests of the new forest so it's widespread. But there are places where there doesn't seem to have been this change. So it's partly connecting with the soil it's quite clear that it's on these clay soils where the drainage is rather poor, where the waterlogging gets worse in the winter and the drying out gets uh, worse yeah. in the summer. Yeah. So it's that combination of soil and climate yeah. that's a really, um, really... And of course there's another strand to this story which is the fungi. So some of these fungi that come in kill the beach and there's a number of fungal pathogens. Honey fungus is one you might have heard of and maybe even eaten. It's very common here and it seems to attack those trees that are weak, that have been 
damaged by drought or waterlogging. So it's partly the fungi interacting with the, with the climate change on these particular soils. I mean, is there a large proportion of the beach woodland in the new forest at threat then of I think it yes. virtually Terminal all of decline. it. Yes, 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 it's dying. And it's really how awful. many decades left? Well, that's another fascinating issue that we've been trying to get a handle on because being able to come to a place like this and to see how it's changed over 70 years, we can maybe make some forecasts about what will happen in the future. But it's actually very difficult to predict the future. Last year we had a really intense drought here. I don't know what it was like up in northern England, but... It's a really hot, intense summer down here. A lot more beach died. So it can just take one event like that to really speed up that process. Because they lost a lot in 1976, yeah. didn't they, mm. when they had the really bad drought. Yeah. Mm. So in terms of the overall um, richness of the habitat, its biodiversity, I mean, if we're going to lose the beach, then do we need to think about how can the habitat be managed so that it's got a chance of being something rich and resilient in the future. Yeah, well this is an absolutely key issue and I think it's going to be affecting many of the habitats that we love, isn't it, in the coming years because climate change is going to change all of our habitats to a greater or lesser extent. And here, again, what is it going to be like in the future? We talk about this all the time, don't we? Mm. And one can, I'm going to take you to another place later where we'll see the process more advanced so we'll get a sense maybe of what could happen in many other places. There's a place where the changes are happening quicker and you can start to see what it's going to look like. It's very hard to know. I mean, we're big fans of heathland. You've seen some heathland in the New Forest, which is dominated by heather, a plant you'll know from your north, from the northern moors, moors the yes. Peak District. And you think, well, heather, there's a plant that's really resilient, isn't it? No, no. because that drought we had last year, lots of heather plants died. Yeah, we saw and we had a lot of a lot of heather beetle coming in and attacking the roots and and killing the plants. Do you get that heather beetle? Yes, yes. So again, supposed to be quite prolific this year as well. Right. So again, this interaction between climate and the insect fauna, the fungi, the whole system is changing, and because it's so complex, it's often hard to know what will happen. But yeah, in terms of management, there's things we could do right now to if you like, strengthen the resilience of these forests. And obviously, because we've already talked about it, it's this lack of regeneration, isn't mm. it? Striking lack of young trees. In the past, how would trees regenerate? We've got this picture of a long history, hundreds of years of grazing by cattle and deer and ponies. How would trees get going in those times? One of the things that we have for the new forest is a fantastic archive that goes back about nearly 900 years, I think, uh, which documents some of the changes that have happened. So it's clear from that that the numbers of animals have fluctuated really quite dramatically. And so sometimes you can imagine if the numbers are really low and maybe a generation of trees can get away. And that seems to be what's happened. You've had pulses of regeneration. And of course, it's a big landscape. So some areas will be regenerating when others are not, depending on the animals moving around. It's a fascinating interaction that, as you say, has been going on for many centuries. And are there some areas of the forest which have literally been woodland as long as there's been woodland in England? Isn't that amazing? I just think it's extraordinary. So we have some lovely pollen analysis work. This is work that's gone into soils and looked at the history of vegetation by looking at the pollen there in things like lake sediments or even woodland, um, woodland litter layers. So we know for a fact 
that some of these forests are so ancient. As you say, they go back to, you know, right back to the Ice Age nearly. Uh, the whole time there's been forest in Britain, there's been forests in parts of the New Forest. Yeah. And I think that's a big reason why they're so important for wildlife. I mean, people come and have a lovely day out as tourists. The New Forest, they visit it. It's a lovely place to go for a walk. But they often don't realise just how important it is for species. It's probably our richest landscape for wildlife in Britain, certainly in lowland England. And uh, it just has an extraordinary diversity of species, partly because you've got all these habitats close to each other, partly because we're near the south coast, but mostly because of this long continuity of use and the fact that some of the vegetation is really, really ancient. And that'll include like the fungi in the soils and the bird populations and the insect populations. They'll all have this four thousand year connection. You can just imagine like the kind of complexity and age of the place makes it special, can't you? Ecologically. It, it feels yeah. very different. I think it's it, I think the key word is continuity. Yeah. I think when you've got continuity of a habitat over centuries, then it gives time for species to build up mm. in populations and in diversity. And one thing that was done was a lovely piece of research comparing the beechwoods here with other ancient beechwoods throughout Europe in terms of the species diversity present. This is right up there with the very best, even to the places like the Carpathians where the beech was uh, a refuge during the Ice Age. So these are forests with a very, very ancient history, amazing diversity. Some of these forests in the, in the New Forest are as rich as that for things like specialist fungi. So they're really special here and it would be great if more people could appreciate just how valuable they are for the wildlife. So we've moved to another part of the New Forest, a short distance away from our first site. Are we still in Denny Wood? We are still in Denny Wood. still in Denny Wood. Um, there was some Denny Wood ambience for you. You might hear in the background a uh, low panting noise. That's Bobby the dog, uh, the new addition to the family. Buzzard just flying buzzard ahead. Just yep. flying overhead. Buzzards. And when we were walking along, we saw a red start. We saw green woodpeckers, great spotted woodpeckers. Stocked over there. Stocked over in the background, yeah. And what I've also noticed is the amount of insects in the leaf litter. I mean, you just have to kind of disturb the leaf litter with your hands, and you might find three or four wood crickets start crawling out. So it's very rich in invertebrate life. It, it is, yeah. yeah. There's lots of leaf litter, and obviously, with all these trees dying, there's lots of dead wood. So at the moment, if you're a dead wood specialist, which a lot of these insects are, particularly um, there are lots of things like longhorn beetles, whose larvae eat the wood. And for them, this is fantastic. At the moment, they've got this fantastic pulse of resources and habitat. So there's, there's a lot going on. And also, as Adrian was saying earlier, there's, there's just this, this continuity of habitat that these species have had. There's been woodland or some variant of it around here for a very long time so it's given all these species a chance to come in and, and build up local populations mm. so there is a fantastic diversity of invertebrates here yeah it's really yeah. special i mean the i mean you mentioned the wood cricket can we see any here but that's a special thing you only see it in the new forest and the isle of Wight, and a little bit of devon so it's a really southern species you see it in france where it flies around but here 
they're flightless, they just walk. And it has this lovely call in the autumn that you can hear if you've got good hearing. Um, you saw dung beetle earlier, didn't you? I did. Big, black, shiny, iridescent purple, gorgeous looking they're gorgeous. beetle. So yeah. I, think, I think there's six species of dung beetle here. Something so like that. Well, It's like a real home of uh, With all beetle. the animals, um, there's plenty of dung for dung beetles. Yeah. So, yeah. And birds and other creatures will eat the invertebrates. Yes. Absolutely. So that's part of the reason mm. there's so many birds here, is there's such a lot of inverts. Yeah. And, uh, there's a lot of food for them. And Adrian, you wanted to bring us to this site in particular to allow a comparison with the last site that we mm. were at. And this is another one of your transects, so a site that has been surveyed continuously for many decades. Yeah, that's right. So it's a second transect which was put in perpendicular to the first. It's about a kilometre away. But what's happened here is even more dramatic than what's happened in the first transect. So here we're stood in what's really a woodland glade now, isn't it? Mm. So it's very grassy, a lot of bracken, very open. It's mostly sky, actually, uh, but a few trees around the margin, a really big Several glade. hundred metres, it's clear yeah. for several hundred metres ahead, isn't it? It is, and clearly the animals come in here because we can see that browse line very clearly, so they're loving the fact it's open and it's grassy, that's what they really like. Um, but we know from the transect from, that 70 years ago, this was again dense, native beechwood with a really high forest and complete canopy cover so a bit like what we saw earlier but even even more trees so it's changed radically in well within a human lifetime hasn't it mm. and it's changed for the same reason so we think that a lot of the trees we know a lot died for example in 1976 and then they actually came in and cleared the dead trees away uh, and that's what we have now the beach has never come back so that for me is a really interesting aspect of this the dynamics of a place like this so you have a big change happening climate change inducing a lot of tree deaths then what happens it doesn't mean you're going to get back what you had before this is changing to another form of ecosystem maybe it now looks much more like parkland than high beach forest but that has its own value doesn't it so actually in terms of things like plant life and insect life it can actually be richer than the interior of a woodland so it's not all doom and gloom it's not all loss it's about change I think and about uh, valuing that change where it happens and looking to the positives but one could also say well could we ever get beechwood back here again could we restore it that's another option that you know mm. could be explored in management so there's many sort of uncertainties and how this will develop in future but uh, I was just fascinated bringing a local manager here uh, and asking him about it. He said, oh, what do you think? And he said, oh, I just love this. It's perfect for people visiting and picnics and the, the livestock. He had no memory or understanding that 70 years ago it was so different. So that's the thing about shifting baselines, isn't it? The knowledge of how things were is lost very quickly and things can change without us being aware of it even. Without the transit, we wouldn't really know what had happened here. So I suppose we, we have these kind of global factors that are impacting on this landscape and there's nothing really we can do about the global factors to change things very quickly, can we? I mean, there are lots of measures being implemented to try and curb climate change, but it's happening and we're losing habitats and other ones are appearing in their place. And it throws up a whole kind of question about how should we respond? Mm. Um, are there things within our control that we could try and do to save certain parts of the habitat or shift it in a certain direction? Or do we just let it 
do what it's going to do, you know, yeah. how interventionist should we be, yeah. and how do we make kind choices? Of, uh, how do we decide? Who decides? Who decides? Actually? Who decides? And what that? criteria are we using? Mm. What values? What value do we put on this landscape versus one filled with mature beech trees? Yeah, exactly. I mean, as obviously, as somebody who's interested in woodlands, I'm re- really sad that we maybe going to lose a lot of that specialist woodland flora and fauna. But I've learned to sort of be more minded about this because things are changing. And you're right, we're going to have to learn to live with these changes. And uh, you're right, from a management point of view, you could, there are things that could be done. You could do things like exclude animals to give the trees a chance to recover and to regenerate. But actually, maybe some of that will happen naturally. And we can see here little um, clumps of bramble colonising. And that can give a site where some trees like oak come in and maybe establish in those so it may go back to woodland in time it's very hard to in a snapshot visit like this to really understand the dynamics but again this is where these the value of long-term research and monitoring can really help that Um, but yeah there are there are options but you're absolutely right it's a fascinating thing to to ask well what should it be like what do we want it to be like and uh, how do we balance if you like here the needs of wildlife versus the needs of the livestock and the deer and uh, and the people and the people yeah and the people because we've had cases um, nearer us in Dorset where they've had trees on heathland and the people managing the heathland for the herpetological interest for the snakes and lizards and and uh, the amphibians they've gone in and they've taken the trees out and the locals have been absolutely incensed. We loved those trees. The trees were beautiful. Why do you want to go cutting down all the trees? Yeah, there's always for? local letters. So in the there's papers, always aren't people it? don't like change. So I think any solution you implement almost has to take that into account. Well, how does it work here? Because there's the interest of the people who have grazing animals, mm-hmm. the commoners. How does it get decided? How many? ponies and cattle that can be on yeah the, this is deeply here. complex and part of for me as a researcher i got very interested in this because it's really unique you do have this legacy of a medieval it's commoning system which has its own governments it still has its own court isn't it our only still functioning medieval court i think so so there's lo- there's forest laws that apply just here in the forest so you can be done by the there's a, the verderers the verderers there's the agister who's like the sheriff you think of the sheriff, it's a bit like Sheriff Nottingham, I would think. So you can actually be done and brought into that court for some infringement against the rights of the commoners, for example. So that's one level of governance. Mm. And of course, it's a national park now, so there's a national park authority. And then you've got all the different state agencies. And there's NGOs like RSPB, National Trust, own land here. So it's incredibly complex. And uh, I just love that, somebody outside that's looking in. How does one make a decision? incredibly difficult it's like looking at an ecosystem <laughs> it is, yeah. so the social is, part of the yeah. system is another added complexity and I, I don't think you could choose anywhere more complex sociologically than the new forest but then how it interacts with the environment and these huge challenges that are coming you know how does one plan for the future and for me it's about resilience how do you manage a place so that it can cope with this change and uh, for me it's about focusing on those ecological processes that support that ability to recover to cope with uh, the big changes that are coming. So we might say thinking about criteria we might say that one criteria is we want maximum biodiversity Mm. or we might say actually no we're really interested in this very rare species that exists here and that if we get rid of the habitat here it's 
doomed. So mm. that's our criteria. And, balanced and I guess yes. what you talked about, all these different groups in the New Forest mm. all have their own agendas in terms of which species or habitats they want. Mm. Um, so I can imagine it gets incredibly difficult to yeah, make I think decisions it political about land is, management in the New Forest. There are these people who are guerrilla rewilders who come in and literally chuck beavers out of the back of a van or whatever because they think that a certain species should be in a certain yeah, area. Yeah, there's an example of that. We so, now have pine marten here. I think they're genetically from Lithuania or somewhere. Okay. Like they've been imported. <laughs> but now they're here and people are valuing that. People are very excited about them and they're monitoring them. And, and of course yeah. we get the, uh, the white-tailed eagles coming into the new forest now that we're reintroduced into the Isle of Wight. Uh, so that's excited people. So the whole system is changing and, and uh, in some quite dramatic ways. Yeah. Uh, the, the way I think of it is I try to think at the ecosystem level mm-hmm. because it is complex. You've got all these species doing different things. If you just focus on one species and manage for that, then you may disadvantage some other species. Um, so if you try and look at the whole ecosystem, if I look at this now as a woodland, I'm interested in its condition, its ecological condition. And if the ecological condition is really good, then lots of species will be able to live there. If you have a look around, what are you looking for in terms of assessing the ecological condition of this this space we're in? Yeah, well, if we think of it as a beach forest, (laughs) it's in really poor condition. And that's why these baselines are so important, because, of course, a lot of the beach has, has lost. But if we think of it, okay, it's a wood pasture system, think of it like that and uh, with a lot of oak in it, maybe actually it's in quite good condition. So it partly depends how you define what you're looking at. But for me, it's about the processes that are going on here. So are the trees regenerating? If they are, we know it's resilient. It's, it's recovering its ability to re- replace itself. So, I'd, you know, if I was wanting to survey for that, I'd be looking in here at things like whether there are young trees under these brambles. I'm interested in things like the age structure of the woodlands, a lot of old trees here. Where were the middle-sized ones? And um, things like deadwoods, so important for so many species, like uh, Lynn said earlier. That's a, another useful indicator of uh, the condition of a habitat like this. But the most important of all is probably the soil. So what's happening underground? We all tend to ignore that, don't we? But it's another whole ecosystem underground, also incredibly diverse. And what we found in our research was that as the woodland opens up, some of the trees die then the soil changes radically and you get into a whole different system there and that can actually um, shift the whole ecosystem onto a different pathway of development so I think we need much more focus on the soils to really assess Change in what way? How did it change? Well if you go into like where we were earlier and look in the soil it'd be full of fungi and here it really wouldn't be more bacteria and that shift actually affects the whole nutrient cycling dynamics under the ground. So this is something we don't know a huge lot about, but uh, it's certainly a big factor in, in woodland dynamics and the dynamics of the whole landscape. So would you say that was a change for the better, for the worse, or just a change of direction? Depends on whether you prefer fungi or bacteria, doesn't it? I know, but what's the outcome going to be? So what would be promoted if the soil became more full of bacteria, not fungi? I think what it can do is almost flip the ecosystem. So I'm really interested in transitions. We tend to think of an ecosystem as fixed, but we now know lots of research is showing that lots of ecosystems can move from one state to another, often quite quickly. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. I think it's gone from a beach woodland ecosystem into a grassland ecosystem predominantly now. 
which has its own interest, but then you think, well, okay, what could happen to that? Will it stay that way? Again, it's about these processes, isn't it? It's about, okay, so what can colonise in here? The bramble is doing a great mm. job of that. Mm. The bracken's doing well. This could become a bracken break. It could just take over here. So it'll all depend on what happens to this area in future in terms of disturbance. Animals, even fire. We can get fire in the new forest in some places. Uh, the climate, flooding, drought, all these things can shift the development of an ecosystem onto a different trajectory, if you like. And what about scrub? Maybe if the ponies were excluded, mm. it might go towards scrub. I think that's really likely. Oh. There's a beautiful uh, hawthorn flowering over it's there. It's regenerating there. Look, there's a bramble bush, yeah. and coming out of the bramble bush, there are, there are hawthorn seedlings. So from the point of view Sapling of pollinating insects, yeah. it's brilliant, isn't it? It's full of bees. That and tree over there is absolutely, you can hear it if you stand underneath it. It's buzzing with bees and hoverflies and beetles and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So from their point of view, that's absolutely great. Yeah. You know, they probably wouldn't be there if it was still a beechwood. You mentioned the wood crickets, they love this sort of marginal habitat between woodland and grassland. And certainly in, when we went to Nep a few days ago, we saw oak trees actually growing through these mm. little copses. They're sort of like small copses of bramble with an oak tree sapling poking out the middle. So yeah. the brambles protected um, the oak trees. If there was less grazing, more scrub, eventually there might actually might, be more trees. You'll get more trees, yeah. Could go back to woodland, yeah. yeah. Is there a move to plant more trees uh, in terms of carbon sequestration? Yeah, I mean, there is some tree planting. It happens in these enclosures that you mentioned earlier. So they do replant there. The big question is whether we should be now looking at the whole landscape rather than managing each little patch of woodland separately. Because the animals, they roam all over and uh, the birds fly all over and take the seeds of things like oak. If you go out to the heaths, you'll find little oak seedlings everywhere because the jays have been busy. So it makes sense to look at it at the landscape scale. And that's another way of answering some of these questions about, you know, how is it going to change? Um, we're only looking at one little bit here. We may be losing woodland here. It may be expanding in another place. So I think it makes a lot of sense to think of it holistically at the whole landscape scale. How, how do you manage it in an integrated way? that supports the movement of animals and plants across the landscape, because that will really help confer this resilience. Yeah, and making, I mean, if you've got all that, if you've got a mosaic of habitats, then if conditions, climate conditions change, one habitat does better than another, at least the rest of it can transition to that habitat. I think that's exactly it. I think that's exactly that's what we need. When, when we talk about resilience, yeah. that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Adaptability, really. It is. And yeah. I think that's the big lesson for them from the new forest is actually having all these different habitats that you mentioned earlier, the heathland, the woodland, the grassland, the mires, all close together, gives you that resilience mm. at the landscape scale. And it'd be lovely to see other landscapes maybe move in that direction. You, you were mentioning the, the Peak District earlier and the moorland there. Wouldn't it be great to see that a bit more 
diverse and that again might help mm. confer that res- that resilience or that adaptability yeah <laughs> and i want you you mentioned that with climate change and there's a prediction of a more mediterranean climate down here on the south or southwest of england but maybe further north there's an opportunity for more proliferation of forest or maybe beechwoods they could migrate yeah <laughs> but it, maybe it's happening too quickly and maybe land for beech trees isn't available because it's arable or sheep grazed. So there's a fantastic opportunity to be thinking about these kind of questions right across the country. You're right, and it's very exciting hearing about all these grassroots initiatives to restore woodland or to restore different habitats, to rewild them. And uh, I think that's a really positive um, aspect of what's going on at the moment. And ideally, it would lead to these kind of diverse landscapes in many different places. And maybe with the rewilding approach, the idea there is to let nature take its course. And I think that might give us the more adaptable, resilient landscapes that we all want to see. Yeah, I mean, Cathy mentioned we'd just been at NEP. And it's a bit like being in a safari park. It is like a safari park. You walk through the front gate and there's a first thing you come across is a stork at the top of a tree awesome, isn't it? you've never that's seen amazing. anything like it no. before in your life um <laughs> and that stag and again there's the massive stag that we came across just sitting staring about, at it. yeah sitting about 50 or 100 meters away yeah really? um oh that's exciting so they fenced off a large amount of land and i i can see that that's the the easy decision in a way you fence it off and then you say right we're going to just see what happens. Well, they let the animals roam there. That's the key, isn't it? So, it's a bit like the New Forest. They mm, let the animals sort of yeah. wander. So yeah. A small number of cattle grazing. But then I can see that you then get into management questions about, well, how many mm. animals? Oh, yeah. Is is it undergrazed at the moment or is it overgrazed? Mm. Or what's the right number of animals? And how do you decide what's right? And yeah. it's... Conservation yeah. management is a, it's not a black and white thing, is it? No, it really isn't. It really isn't. It's full of values that yeah. often aren't really made explicit. Yeah. And uh, we have a rewilding project near to here in Dorset where it's the same thing. They've, they've been inspired by NEP, which is a phenomenal project. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. delivering so much for wildlife. Very exciting. Lots of projects springing up all over the place, like the one down our road. And I asked them that question, the managers there. I said, well, how do you decide how many animals to have? He says, oh, well, when it gets too many w- trees, we'll increase the number of livestock. And you think, okay, so it's not really wild at all, is it? No. It's, we've got in our minds this sort of cultural value of a farmed landscape. We want it sort of open, but why is that? Is that something, I think it's something deep in our culture that we're, we've been farmers for so long, 6,000 years or something, yeah. we've forgotten what a really wild landscape looks like now. And uh, for me, as somebody who likes forests, it's that. It's lots and lots of trees. But of course, people disagree with that. You can, we can argue all day about whether oh, that's yeah. right or not. <laughs> also, a really wild landscape has got predators in it. Exactly. Yes. Predators. Like yes. wolves. There's this whole thing about bringing back wolves to Scotland. It's profoundly unpopular with all the sheep farmers. Well, there's quite a struggle in the Pyrenees about that, isn't there? Oh, yes. And we, yes, and, and like we saw in the Pyrenees with the, with the bears. Yeah. And the the locals are just completely anti-bear, and to change that culture is going to take another generation or two at it's least. It's really difficult. Yeah, it's really hard. People don't actually want to live in a landscape with apex predators. But they're coming. I mean, oh you, yeah, it's, it's like wolves in Germany now, aren't yeah. they? And 
I, I saw a fantastic piece of research, radio tracking wolves, which are spreading in Europe. And uh, you think, you know, a wolf will maybe just sit around in one place. No, <laughs> they, <laughs> they, travel. Walk, they travel for hundreds of kilometers. It might start off in Germany or somewhere and end up in Italy. You know, it's just extraordinary. So, but that's, that's these processes again, isn't it? About mm. movement and dispersal and allowing species the freedom to do to move in that way and I think ecologically that's such an important process to Humans have moved all over the place after all haven't they? Well, that's yeah. true. I find it hugely inspiring working here and I feel really privileged to have had a chance to get to know it a bit and to try and understand it. You only ever feel you're beginning to get a little glimmer of how it works as a system. But what really struck me was when I was working on it here and I started to see that it's changing so radically and in fact the ecosystem was collapsing. At the very same time there were major events happening elsewhere in the world like a massive death of a large part of the Great Barrier Reef in Australia about 2016-2017 from the same cause, from climate change again. And you start to think, there's a global thing going on here. This is just one example of many ecosystems that are really changing radically because of what's happening in the world. And I don't think we've really grasped the scale of this. It only really came home to me because, inspired by what I saw here, I went and wrote a book about ecosystem collapse and recovery, both aspects of it. Um, because I thought, I really want to understand what's happening globally. How much is this happening elsewhere? And there are many, many examples in any kind of ecosystem. They're changing so quickly. So I think that presents us with a huge challenge uh, as people to learn to live with that change and to, to maybe try and conserve some bits that you know, are really under threat at the moment. Uh, but also to maybe start to value how things are changing. Because I think, as Lynn said earlier, lots of species are moving. They're on the move. And often we're just not aware of this. A lot of the insects we find in our garden now are new to this country from the last few years. So our ecosystems are already changing rapidly and uh, we're really not aware of that. So I just really encourage people to, to become more aware and, and, and learning to know a place over time and to monitor it like was done here. It's an incredibly valuable way of coming to that understanding. We're being slightly distracted we by are. Bobby. What's Bobby finding? Uh, Bobby the leaves are blowing around. Yeah, <laughs> Bobby loves chasing leaves. She's oh, it's obsessed. Leaves. <laughs> just leaves. It's She's not stolen your thunder. Yeah. Uh, I was being fine. distracted by the... Upstaged by the dog. And the black cap and the woodpecker. Oh, it's been yeah. like, there was a woodpecker drumming, wasn't yeah. there? Yeah, there was. Healy magic. Definitely. Well, we've had a great time here, haven't we? Yeah, I think I've found it amazing just to be amongst the trees. The ancient trees, the big trees, the old trees of dead trees you know it's been phenomenal just to be here and immerse ourselves and it's a because it's such a large area you do feel a sense of immersion yeah. in ways that you can i don't oh, think it's do. quite hard to find that anywhere else mm. in england you can get properly lost here yeah <laughs> or you don't have to go very far from no. one of those car parks no. to feel that you're in the middle of the woods and back in time it feels very much like stepping back in time and you have to go quite a long way to access some 20th century stuff. Um, I've just been distracted by a dragonfly or a oh, damselfly. Good. That's the first one we've seen. It's a great place for them. Yeah. 
Well, thank you very much for yeah. taking the time to show us this bit of the forest. It's been a total Great. pleasure. It's been it lovely has. to share and, it. Um, have we got any other calls for action? There's a fantastic organisation now, quite a new one, called Wild New Forest. Oh, yeah. And for the first time ever, I think, we have an organisation that's all about the wildlife. It's about, let's celebrate the wildlife, let's share our photographs of the wildlife, let's, let's just get out there and look at it. So they lead tours here, you can come down, you can do a boat trip down the river, you can do bird watching, you can do fungus forays with them, they're fantastic. So I'd just say to anyone who is interested in coming down to the New Forest, check out Well New Forest, they've got a fantastic website full of information and uh, they do just a great thing. And they're doing lots of monitoring. They're monitoring the bird populations, they're monitoring the fungi, all sorts of things that have really been neglected in the past. So let's have more of that, please. They're wonderful. I would say to anybody, get out into your local woodland and find your ancient trees. On the Woodlands Trust website, there's a directory, an inventory of ancient trees. So somewhere near you, there will be a massive oak or yew tree and possibly a beech tree. <laughs>